All right, so today for review, I want to do something a, a little bit different. I want to ask your guys' input on some review. I want to ask you what's something that has stuck out to you in our study of Mark up until this point. What's something that uh, God has placed on your heart, something you've been learning or you've been encouraged by? Is God's word taking root in our hearts and our minds? Let's teach each other what God has been teaching us throughout the first nine or so chapters of Mark. What's something you've learned so far? Yes. Um, I think the part uh, emphasizing that Jesus came as a servant and in order to be Christ-like. Um, the, the role of, of being a servant to others around you is key. Yeah. Very important. Yeah, absolutely. That's like flipping our whole paradigm upside down, right? That's not natural to our, our thinking, to our understanding. Uh, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. That was a, a radical teaching and Jesus definitely demonstrated that. Good. Anybody else? Well, I think I think Jesus stating in his primary mission was for for Israel, for the Jews. Mm -hmm. um, and still feeding the Gentiles, 4,000 Gentiles. I mean, it's. I guess I'd seen it before, but I didn't recollect that it was Jesus Christ that was actually performing miracles with the Gentiles, also. That one specifically. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's like a little microcosm of the greater picture of what God is doing in his program, that he came to save the Jews first and then for the Gentiles. And you can see that really clearly in the feeding of the 4,000. Do you have something, Jerry? Well, I've been impressed with how much our humanness, and especially our human culture that we grow up in affects our ability to hear what God is actually saying. Even to see how much time Jesus spent with those twelve specifically. And yet what we're looking at, especially in Mark where he abbreviates so thoroughly, they were with him and listening to him. 90% of the time and 10% of the time Jesus was doing dramatic things to them. And yet, it just never got in me. And I know that even in our culture here, we're, for those of us who have grown up in a Christian culture, we still don't hear what he is saying. We still interpret that in, in our cultural ways. Way off target at times. It's, it's just astonishing. Yeah. We don't. We have such a hard time seeing that the main point is the main point. <laughs> we do indeed. Yeah. And with that, the the miracle where he's 
place to help him. It was patience and, you know, God is doing stuff and we're just not, we're seeing, but we're not seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we are Our blind, right? We're blind. Yeah, that's kind of what stuck out to me too, just seeing the, uh, how, how thick and how dense the disciples are. They just don't get it, right? After Jesus showing himself and revealing himself to them, and yet we're in the same boat. We are so thick, so dense, we just don't understand. And it's not like Jesus came waving his arms saying, I am God, but he might as well have, right? <laughs> he, he came just short of that. Uh, all the different ways that he revealed himself and showed his glory and yet they're still just like chasing butterflies or something. They're, they're not quite getting it. They have their own concept of what it is that the Messiah was coming to do. Um, and it even took them a while to grasp the fact that he is a Messiah. And once they did that, they're, they're looking toward glory, not toward his humiliation. So yeah, we're in that same boat for sure. All right, well, good. Thank you for teaching alongside of me. Um, thinking back to last week and that scene in particular of uh, Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, um, explain to me how Mark 9-1 is not evidence of a false prophecy of Jesus or of his kingdom having already been fully established. So just by way of reminder, Mark 9.1 says that Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Again, that's a, a common verse that atheists especially will take and say, Jesus was a false prophet. He said his, his kingdom was going to come in, in glory and power and these people were going to see it and that didn't happen. So tell me why that's not the case. I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. Jesus didn't really establish his kingdom, right? He was a false prophet. Tell me otherwise. Well, I think, I think the beginning of his church was, was part of his kingdom, wasn't it? I mean, because we're going to be in his kingdom. Yeah, and church is a, a sub part of the kingdom of God. Any other thoughts? No, I have a question. I wasn't here last week. Okay, good. <laughs> so when he references that some will not taste death till they see the kingdom, short answer, who was he, re who was he referencing? Who was he referring to? Yeah, guys, who, who was he referring to? Peter, James, and John. All right, Peter, James, and John. People he deliberately took up the mountain in the context of that statement. They saw they had a they saw a living picture of the king Jesus' kingdom in in its glory at that moment. Mm -hmm. Just like the people that um, watched the first atomic explosion, uh, they saw what that can do without seeing all the whole world being blown up. Yeah. We got a glimpse of the power. We got a glimpse of what, what we're talking about. A very accurate and clear picture. But you don't get the whole thing. 
and he was just saying they get to see it, and we all know that to see something isn't to experience it in its fullness. Mm -hmm. And I had mentioned last week how some will say that when Jesus is talking about how some will see the kingdom of God in its power, or they will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in its power, they say, well, it has to be long enough for, um, for some to have died, but not long enough that all of them have died. So they'll focus on the, the tasting death aspect rather than on the, the some aspect. Jesus like Jerry said, he's pointing to Peter, James, and John. They're the ones who are going to get a, a glimpse and a taste of the kingdom. Uh, another way to translate the kingdom is Jesus' royal splendor or his glory. They will see his royal splendor. They will see his glory uh, prior to their death, but not all of them will because many of them, the vast majority of them, will not see that. It was only those three few who uh, got a glimpse into that transfiguration event which took place immediately after this uh, statement that Jesus had. So the transfiguration was before this though, right? Uh, it was after verse 1. So, nine. yep. And it's uh, the same case in all the synoptic oh, gospels. Okay. Jesus okay. makes this statement, some of you won't taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom or in his glory. And even though not all the synoptics are in chronological order, all of them place the transfiguration directly after this statement. And after six days. Yep. yep. And I think it's Luke who says after eight days, but he's just counting a little bit differently. Um, so if I say, you know, in, in three days, we're going to have Wednesday night study here. I might say, well, it's Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, right? But if you count Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, and then if you don't count Wednesday as a full day, you end up with different number so all right uh, any other thoughts or questions on last week we ended rather abruptly and those are two really deep topics that we covered we talked about the transfiguration and the relationship of John the Baptist and Elijah were there any questions that went unasked or unanswered at I the end of last week say, I love how Peter said the word of God is even clearer yeah that would be a way yes yeah, that's awesome. He was standing there, and he saw the glory of God. And, and yet he, he comes back to the Word. Yeah, the Word of God is even more glorious. Good. Which corresponds to what Jesus said about somebody coming back from the dead. Yep, in Luke 16. It's all based on the Word. Without the Word, we have nothing without the Bible. We don't know anything at all about God. We have, we can only, we only have guesses. We only have major assumptions. Mm -hmm. the, the communication is the most fundamental way of passing on information. Words. We have everything we need for for life and godliness. The word of God is absolutely sufficient. All right. Well, let's jump into this week's study. See how far we get. We'll see. Uh, starting off in verse 14, we ended in 13 last week, but we have to kind of uh, set a, a foundation here. We have to establish who it is that we're talking about. So in verse 14, it says, when they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. So first thing we have to identify, and I'm going to task you guys with this, is who is uh, being referenced here when it talks about they and them. These aren't just... Uh, 
modern 21st century uh, pronouns that are being utilized here? Who is being identified here when it says they and them in verse 14? Disciples. All right, which ones? And you're at a little bit of a disadvantage because you weren't here last week. Well, we just recapped a little bit. So uh, the they, the first they that we see in verse 14, when they came back to the disciples, who is being referenced there? Jesus, Peter, James, and John. All right. Jesus, Peter, James, and John. So those four, they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration or the, the Mount where Jesus was transfigured, right? And then they came down to the disciples. And who are the disciples there? Yeah, obviously it's the the rest of the 12 minus the three, right? So Jesus and the three came down to the nine and perhaps some others. And while they were there, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes were arguing with them, with the nine disciples, right? Well, Jesus and his inner circle got back. They found these people arguing. They are uh, debating, disputing. They're having a, a verbal spar of some sort that's going on here. Um, let's continue reading verse 15. It says that immediately when the entire crowd saw him, saw Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? One of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. So Jesus, returning from the mountains, he is bombarded with uh, this argument that's taking place. And he's uh, seeing his nine disciples arguing with the scribes. Uh, he has this crowd that is amazed to see him and running up and wanting to, to see Jesus and be in his presence. And then there's a demon. Uh, so all kinds of stuff that's going on that Jesus kind of steps into. Uh, he's now left his quiet, glorious experience on the mountain that's now over, and now there's a, a lot going on. It's all chaotic, right? All these things going on at once. There's this argument, people coming up to him, and a, a random demon over here. Uh, <laughs> th that's a bunch, right? Well, Jesus tried to get his bearings a little bit by asking a question in verse 16. He says, what are you discussing, right? What are you fighting about? Uh, how many of you guys have asked that question this week? I know I've asked that question this week. I know my wife has asked that question this week. What's going on? What's, what's the disagreement? What's the argument, right? Uh, this man's response, however, seems to be a little bit out of left field. Uh, so I think we have to ask ourselves how we might understand this man's response to the question that Jesus asked. He asked, what are you guys arguing about? What are you fighting about? And he says in verse 17, uh, teacher, I brought you my son, possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. So, how should we understand this explanation that this man gives to the question that Jesus asks? What are you guys fighting about? How does this? How ought we to make sense of the the question Jesus poses and the response that he gets? Well, they're arguing over power. Yeah. Whether or not the disciples have any. Okay, good. That is very insightful. So if 
Jesus' disciples claimed to be able to cast out a demon, even if it was just uh, an implicit claim by uh, attempting to do it, and yet they were unable to do it, that would certainly cause uh, questions to be raised, right? That these disciples of Jesus are claiming that they can cast out this demon, and yet it remains. They're unable to do it. I think that would cause some dispute. That would cause some arguing. Yes? And maybe the argument was the disciples saying it must not be a demon. It must just be a medical thing. And him saying, no, it's a demon. Yeah, but they were trying to cast it out. They had made an attempt to, to get rid of it. And if, I'm, and, I'm just saying, just speculating, if they were arguing, yeah. you know, what would the argument yeah and it could be whether they even have the power but it, it also could have been whether it's a demon or not yeah. yeah it's hard to know exactly what the the disagreement was we're not told that they were arguing about this but i think the the fact that this man follows up the the question that jesus has with telling him the the situation kind of laying it out well i i brought you my son and and he has a demon even this man recognized he had his demon but the disciples they weren't able to do anything about it and we'll see here shortly that jesus kind of chastises his disciples for uh how they handle this whole situation yes well, back when they were initially sent out they were given authority to cast out demons but they also healed apart from demonic activities yeah they were doing both so even if it wasn't a demon they should have the, yeah, they've already exercised that ability to heal also. Yes, uh, Logan. Do you think it would have anything to do with the uh, the father's faith too, maybe? Because uh, he was like, they can't do it. And then he was like, but if you can. And then he, Jesus kind of chastised him later and says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Yeah, the, the Father's faith is definitely brought into question, for sure. And then he falls down and says, well, I believe, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Did you guys? His initial statement was that he told the disciples to cast it out. He, it wasn't a request to the disciples. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he, he brought it to them. Did you guys notice the, the pronouns in verse 17? How it says that one of the crowd answered him and said, Teacher, I brought you, my son, possessed with a spirit, which makes him mute. But remember, Jesus wasn't there, right? He, he was coming down from the mountain. So he shows up on the scene, and this man was looking for Jesus to heal his son, but instead he found Jesus' disciples. And we really don't have any reason to expect this man or the crowds or the scribes or anybody else for that matter to distinguish between Jesus and those who are operating under his power and authority. They are those who are uh, supposed to be doing what Jesus had sent them out to do, right? They're operating uh, under his own authority. And so this inability of theirs to cast out this demon reflected poorly on Jesus' power and authority. They weren't able to do it, and that was a reflection on Jesus himself. Um, I'm sure that you found yourself in a, a similar situation before, perhaps in a, a management position at work where uh, somebody has some sort of issue, some customer is unhappy with or with the way that they've been treated or, or mistreated or, or wronged or dissatisfied, and 
even though you aren't personally responsible, maybe it was a, an employee of yours or a coworker of yours who did this thing, this person is now coming to you and they're saying, I'm finding you and, and your establishment uh, responsible. I'm holding you accountable. And you're left there kind of like, well, I, I wasn't there. I didn't have anything to do with it, but I, I get where you're coming from. It seems to be kind of the situation that Jesus is in. Jesus didn't have uh, this experience where he was unable to, to cast out this demon, right? But his disciples were unable to cast out this demon. And now this man is coming and saying, well, I, I brought him to you, right? Um, this uh, this demon, as we've discussed before, uh, really wants to destroy this boy, right? That is the the sole desire of these demons. Uh, they exist to mar and distort the image of God in man. Let's go back and look at a couple of other situations where we've seen this in the past. Back in Mark one twenty six, clear back at the very beginning of the the gospel. It's talking about this demon. Uh, it says in 25 that Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And then verse 26, Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. So it threw him into convulsions, trying to harm and mar the, the image of God. We saw the same thing with the demoniac, the legion demoniac in chapter 5, verse 5. It says that constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and he was gashing himself with stones. Um, John 10.10 10 says that the, the thief comes to still kill and destroy. That is what the enemy does. That is his purpose. That is his goal. And the, the demons share that same purpose and goal. He is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking who he can devour. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about how Satan has the power of death. We see that demonstrated with uh, Job, that Satan uh, is given the, the authority to, to kill Job's sons and daughters. He exercises that death, that, that power of death. A uh, couple of quotes I have here. Warner Forrester, he says that in most of the stories of possession, what is at issue is not merely sickness, but a destruction and distortion of the divine likeness of man according to creation. The demons seek to ruin the man and sometimes drive him to self-destruction. That is what the demons are, are trying to do. And uh, Minucius Felix, a second century apologist, he uh, guesses, he says that these spirits, therefore, having lost the simplicity of their created created creating, I don't know, I might have written that wrong, of their being, and the primitive fineness of their nature are now clogged and laden with iniquity. Utterly undone themselves, they make it their whole business to undo others for companions in misery. Being depraved themselves, they would infuse the same depravity into others. So these demons, which are fallen angels, they were once... Uh, in a, a much more glorious position. They have fallen, they are depraved themselves, and uh, it's their desire, their goal to destroy others, to again uh, mar that image of God that is found within man. Any thoughts or questions up to this point, up through verse 18? 
let's continue on. Let's see what Jesus' response is to this man and this issue that, uh, that he has with this boy. Uh, looking into verse 19, it says that he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When, they, when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion, and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. So Jesus responds here um, in frustrated compassion, which are uh, two adjectives that don't typically go together, right? You're, you're kind of either frustrated or you're, you're compassionate, but I think that Jesus is both frustrated and compassionate here, and we can see both those kind of coming out. Um, back in 838, Jesus referred to unbelievers as an adulterous and sinful generation. But here, Jesus calls his disciples an unbelieving generation. So he's kind of equating his disciples with this unbelieving group that he's already identified before. He's saying, you guys are an unbelieving generation. And he begins to really lay into them a little bit. He's not happy with them, right? Uh, he says in verse 19, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Or how long shall I tolerate you or endure you? Uh, Jesus is very tolerant with them. And once again, the disciples, they're, they're pretty dense, right? They're kind of thick. It's taken them a while to really get through their head what it is that, that Jesus is saying. And Jesus has been quite clear about his revelation of himself uh, all along. And thank God that he is patient, that he is long-suffering. Um, he continues to be long-suffering, but you can tell that he's being, he's beginning to get a little bit exasperated with the disciples. How long am I going to have to put up with you and endure you? When are you guys going to get it, right? Uh, the Nazbi ends uh, verse 19 where he says, bring him to me with an exclamation point, which I think is fitting. I really don't know how else to, to read that passage. Bring him to me. That's like a very emphatic type statement that uh, Jesus was making. He, he seemed to be frustrated and exasperated with the nine, right? The disciples who were left down there and their inability to cast out this demon, maybe even their attempt for, for trying to do so. Um, though we also see that he is willing and he is compassionate in helping this boy, being willing to, to help this boy and saying, bring him to me. Um, a little bit of both, the, again, the, the frustration and the compassion being revealed from Jesus. And then in, in verse 20, before the, the boy even gets to, to Jesus, the demons see Jesus and lashes out at the boy again. It says that uh, he threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. Uh, it's pretty violent. I was just telling somebody this week about uh, a time when I saw somebody overdose in a very similar way. They were foaming at the mouth and they were convulsing until they weren't convulsing anymore. Uh, it's very violent, very um, life-threatening. 
And how is it that Jesus responds to this boy being thrown into this violent convulsion, foaming at the mouth? Yeah, isn't that crazy? He, he doesn't get up and go help the boy. He doesn't rebuke the demon. Luke tells us that he does both those things later on, but not immediately. His immediate reaction with this boy over here convulsing and, and foaming at the mouth is to turn and ask the dad, hey, how long has this been happening? That's, that's wild, right? He's uh, engaging in this conversation with the father. Uh, how long has this been going on? And the father says, well, it's been happening since, since childhood. Um, but I think we, we have to ask ourselves why it is that Jesus asks this question in verse 21 to the, the father of the boy. Does he need this insight? Does he need this information from the father's boy to know how long this has been going on? Does he have to uh, make sure that he delivers the, the right dosage of healing power to the boy so he doesn't overdose on his healing power? Uh, why does the father... Or why does Jesus ask the father this question, do you think? Let's so that everybody there <clears throat> that this is not just something that happened a day or two ago or even shortly. It's been a long term. Okay. For everybody else to know. Yeah, to give insight to the surrounding group and, and to us, even thousands of years later reading. <coughs> Was somebody else going to say something? Yeah. Um, you know, if you're a, a father of a child, yeah. and your child has been behaving this way since they were since they were young, you know, obviously you would try to do something. I'm sure the father had taken him to doctors or healers trying to get him help. So basically, this isn't just like Jim was saying. This isn't some new thing to the crowd. It's a you know, it's an example. Maybe people in the crowd knew some and knew the issue, but he knew intimately what he'd been struggling with with this child for years, apparently. Yeah, and I think that is uh, one of the the undertones, the, the intimacy of the the situation, how personal it is, and. Just seeing Jesus' compassion that, that he cared. We know that he knows, right? Or he has the, the ability to know without asking the Father to, to give him some kind of insight. Um, but we see the, the compassion of Jesus come, come out. Uh, how long has this been going on? He's taken a personal interest in this man, realizing this is his boy on the ground who's convulsing, that there are uh, emotions that are at play here. And just like with back in... 19, where we have to try to a little bit guess at the tone when Jesus says, bring him to me, right? Is he, is he angry at the disciples or is he compassionate with the kids? Um, we don't really get tone and inflection uh, relayed to us through the text of scripture. Um, one of the, the common places to see this is in Acts 26 when King Agrippa is talking to Paul. And he, again, it's, it's kind of ambiguous. He could be saying to Paul, uh, in a, a short time, you are going to persuade me to become a Christian. Uh, kind of uh, optimistic. Just keep going. I, I'm almost there. Or he could be saying, are, are, you really think you're going to 
persuade me to be a Christian in, in such a short amount of time, <laughs> that, that's not going to happen, right? So uh, I want you guys to revive your, your old junior high acting skills for a minute and give your best impression of the tone that you suspect Jesus might have had in verse 21 when he says, how long has this been happening to him? Anybody want to take a stab at portraying the tone you think Jesus might have had when saying that? All right. <laughs> How long has this been happening to him? All right. How was that? Anybody else want to take a shot? <laughs> no, <laughs> getting a bunch of nose. All right. I'm. <laughs> Andy, you are the winner. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm definitely no actor, but there has to be some tenderness and some compassion in there, right? It's not just simply Jesus wondering and, and trying to gather information, but trying to connect with this father and, and wondering, uh, not not wondering, but wanting him to know. I care about your son. I, I have compassion for your son. Uh, Logan, do you have a question or comment? Yeah. Also, you know, he was just, who knows how long he was arguing with the disciples because the person he came to have heal his son, his disciples couldn't heal him. And so I would have lost a little, some doubt would have crept into me. Yeah. You know, while that was happening. And I don't know, this is, like, this is, the only passage that we have this happening, really, of, uh, of it not going, it not going good for the followers, or it's not working. You know, it's one of the only ones. Um, and so I can see Jesus kind of given, letting the Father kind of take take his faith back. You know, it's like I would have lost it at this point. I mean, he was arguing. He was mad. That's what arguing is. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus kind of starting to show him, hey, I, I'm, I'm different. I know these, these clowns over here, these nine fools, right? They were unable to do what, what you were asking them to do. That's not me, right? Um, trying to draw a little bit of separation there, perhaps. Yes? Yeah, going along with what Logan's saying, he's maybe reminding the Father, how long has this been going on? Do you expect it to be here instantly? Mm-hmm. You know, this you. Five years, ten years, I don't know how long it's been, but years and years, and now you're you're arguing, you're upset that it didn't go away instantly. And trying to bring the father back to you're right, I, you know, I put up you know, we've endured this a long time. And uh, just kind of bring him back down to reality. Yeah. Yeah, I imagine the father was not in very high spirits at that point. He was probably not in the best mood, having had some idea in his mind, I'm going to take him to Jesus. I've seen everything that, that Jesus has done for my cousin, my buddy, my friend, and all these other people that are talking about Jesus. Maybe he can do that for my boy. And then to, to get there and be let down and disappointed by 
the disciples' inability to actually do that. Um, yeah, emotions would definitely be running high for sure. Yeah, Jerry. Well, referring to Jesus, how Jesus actually said that, I, I certainly think his voice was full of compassion. I worked in a hospital for a couple of years, and to hear doctors talk about hmm. their patients, or to their patients, actually, because I was often in a room when the doctor's in there, and, you know, and some of them are just as cold and dispassionate as... No bedtime manner at all. Yeah, yeah. And, and other, other guys there, and I think, and, and that's probably the way I would get, because you can't deal with that emotion day in and day out without getting really old in a hurry mm -hmm. without some sort of defense mechanism. But there were others that we know, we probably all choose doctors that act like they care when you come up to them with your problem. Can't imagine Jesus would not have been, been doing that, and then that led the father to yeah change his attitude because he I I mean I still think that when he says there in verse 18 I told your disciples to cast it out he needs to come and ask me yeah. by hearing the compassion that. That generates compassion in your humility. Hearer. Yes, it generates yeah. the humility. You, you are dependent on him completely at this point. Okay. It's just like you always have been, just don't realize it. <laughs> Amen. Sam, do you have something? Oh, I was just going to say, it, it seems like he wasn't arguing with the disciples. It was, it, it seems the disciples were arguing with the, with the scribes, so mm -hmm. he brings them to them. They can't heal them, and suddenly the scribes are like, ah, see, I told you, you guys have nothing, you have no power. And now yep. the disciples are getting, oh, yeah, well, and now they're arguing, this guy's just standing here with his demon-possessed son. Like, what about me? <laughs> finally, the manager finally shows up. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, again, big chaotic mess, and Jesus has to come in the midst of all this and settle things. And yeah, the man was just kind of off on the side, forgotten while all this is conspiring. But in the, the midst of all this, we see both Jesus' willingness to, to see and heal the boy and his interaction with the father. Um, I think in both these scenes, we can see his, his compassion shine through, that he is tender, that he isn't that cold doctor who doesn't care, but he actually has some, some bedside manner and wants to uh, convey that to the boy's father. He is, it's a, a very personal situation, right? And once again, Mark 10.45 says, what? Yeah, he came to serve. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, so many times Mark highlights that same sentiment all throughout his gospel. Uh, we see that at the end of 21, that this has been taking place from childhood. So this is a, a long-term malady that affected both the boy and the father alike. It affected both of them. Um, in Luke 9.38, it says that the dad came begging for Jesus to heal his son. And it says that it was his only boy. He was begging Jesus to heal his only boy. You can just hear the, the desperation in that, that he is... Uh, needing help. 
Luke also adds that the, the demon caused the boy to, to randomly scream out. Uh, we see down in 22 that that would often throw him into the fire, throw him into the water to destroy him. Uh, you can just kind of tell this would take a lot out of the, the father, that it would require constant monitoring. Um, just imagine the, the burden that that would put on the father, that it would put on the family, and the burden that would be relieved from them if this malady were to be taken away. Uh, I've spent a lot of time in uh, healthcare and social work, and uh, I've had people that I had to, to help and, and care for and aid who were blind, had to guide them around the city and uh, let them fall down and let them uh, get hurt and, and try to save them before they do something that's really foolish. Uh, there was another young lady that I worked with and she couldn't talk at all. And um, similar to this boy, she was mute and needed a lot of help and assistance in uh, not hurting herself and communicating with other people. And uh, it really takes somebody to constantly be there, walking alongside of them, making sure that they're not hurting themselves or injuring themselves. It requires constant assistance. And so just to imagine everything the boy's father was going through and to see Jesus come and respond to that and, and see, oh, I, I, I know, it's been going on a long time, uh, since childhood, and to, to love on him and to um, project that compassion onto him. Uh, that's, that's important to note. Um, in 22 again, it says, first off, that um, this demon would often throw the boy into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Uh, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. And as we've already mentioned, the, the doubt the man learned from his experience with the disciples has now been applied to Jesus himself. So he first had this experience with the disciples, and they were unable to do it. And now he's coming to Jesus, and he says, if, if you can do anything, will you please help? And once again, this speaks to the importance of our representative work as ambassadors of Christ. We're going to learn later on in Second uh, Corinthians 5 about how we are ambassadors. And as ambassadors, we reflect and represent him uh, for both the good and the bad. And... Uh, people will, will see us and they will associate us with Jesus whether or not we are acting like Jesus. This is why not everybody should have a fish on the back of their car, right? Because we don't drive like Christians oftentimes. And so to uh, really put that out and advertise, oh, I'm a Christian, we better be driving like a Christian, right? Because we are representing him uh, wherever we are. We know that God is indeed sovereign over all things, including salvation, but you and I are still responsible for how we live our lives, for how we bear his name, for the things that we do. We have to uh, remember that we are responsible just as the disciples were responsible. And they kind of fell on their face and that's not something that you and I want to be doing, right? So this man um, in 22, right? He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and, and help us. Notice that he's not doubting uh, Jesus' willingness to, to help, but he's actually doubt, doubting his ability to do so. Back in Mark chapter 1, uh, verse 40, we saw that a lep leper came up to Jesus, and this leper was beseeching him and falling on his knees before him, and he says, if you are willing, you can make me whole. You can cleanse me. So this man 
the leper back in chapter one, he wasn't doubting Jesus' ability, but he was doubting his willingness. He says, yes, I know you're, you're, you're the Messiah, perhaps. You, you're at least a prophet. You can do this, but are you willing to help me? Uh, in chapter five, the hemorrhaging woman, uh, she didn't even care about Jesus' of willingness. She just presumed upon his ability, and she reached out and touched the fringe of his cloak, and uh, she had this faith that she was going to be healed. But this man here, he is doubting the ability of Jesus to do it. And he's doing so because of the disciples' inability before that he is now projecting onto Jesus. Uh, so we see in, in verse 23, it says that Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. So Jesus is reminding this man again, that he is different. He is unique. He is set apart. He is holy. Um, he's not like the, the nine disciples that he's leading and he's training up, he's building up. He is uh, different. And this man needs to recognize that difference and perhaps not be so questioning with, with Jesus. He needs to have more faith in Jesus. We should realize here at this point that it's not... Um, the, the act of believing that is such a big deal that is saving, um, but rather it's the object of our faith that is of utmost importance. So yes, belief is important, but uh, faith is worthless if it's not focused in the proper direction. So if I say that um, I believe that I'm going to win the lottery, that doesn't mean that I'm going to win the lottery, right? That, that faith is not placed in a, a solid object. Uh, I can have faith that if I, I spin around and I clap my hands, God is going to magically give me a, a banana split right here. That's not going to happen. That faith is ill-founded, right? Uh, I could have sincere, true belief, uh, a burning in my bosom, so to speak, um, but that, that's worthless. It's meaningless um, unless that faith is founded in truth. If it's not based in truth, then it is worthless faith. And Jesus says that if we have faith, true faith, in the one who himself is the way, the truth, and the life, um, then he who rendered Satan powerless, the one who has been given the power of death, uh, Jesus rendered him powerless by his death on the cross. He will then, uh, there, there's nothing that is impossible for him, right? It says in verse 24, um, no, 23. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And we see the same thing uh, in the next chapter, chapter 10, that uh, there's, there's nothing that is impossible for God. All things are indeed possible for him who has faith. <clears throat> there are so many people who will misuse this verse and, and take it out of context. And uh, faith healers who will say, well, you just have to believe. And uh, they'll go out and they will... Uh, presume upon the grace of God, and when that actually doesn't come to fruition, they'll blame the person who they're trying to heal, and they'll say, well, they obviously didn't have enough faith. They didn't have enough hope and trust in God. Um, they'll take verses like this, and they'll completely twist and misuse them for their own perverted gain. Yes, Jim? Well, I was just looking at verse 22 after talking to Jesus. It sounds more like a request where if you look back in verse yes. 18, it almost sounds like a demand. Yeah, good. That's what Jerry was pointing out before. In, in 18, they said, I told your, the father said, I told your disciples to cast it out, and they couldn't do it. 
In 22 he says, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help. And so there, there's some humility there, but Jesus says, no, you're taking that humility too far because I can do something. So don't, don't doubt my ability. Um, the, the humility is good, but uh, I can definitely do it, right? All right. Uh, I wanted to read to you from Second Peter in, in reference to this, um, to our, our modern, some people's modern understanding of this verse. And again, the, the faith healers who are just twisted and perverted, and they'll take this and use this verse as a, a battering ram to, to beat up on people saying they don't have enough faith. In Second Peter 2, 1 through 3, it says, uh, it's a warning saying, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgments from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. That's 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Again, Peter, who was... Uh, giving his words to Mark as Mark's writing these down. Later on, wrote, wrote writing this epistle in Second Peter, um, kind of harking back to how people are really twisted and messed up. And I think that really speaks to the faith healers that will take and twist this verse, even today. All right, so in verse 24, you have to really love the response that this man gives. He says... Immediately, the boy's father cried out and he said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Uh, surely you've been there before. I know I've been there before. Uh, we know that even uh, Paul has been there before uh, in Romans 7, realizing that uh, we still struggle with the flesh. And that includes our, our doubts and our fears and our anxieties. But we can rest in Jesus. We can take hope and uh, rest in the finished work of Christ. Verses 25 through 27. It says that when Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him and got and got up. And so we see here uh, that 25 through 27 reveal both Jesus' authority and the demon's sinful opposition. Jesus told the demon, no, you get out of there. And the demon kind of threw a fit a little bit, right? He first threw him into a convulsion, and then he came out. Uh, just a couple days ago, Britt was telling one of our kids, you need to set that down. And they took him, they threw it on the ground. Just like, well, I'll set it down all right and I'll do so sinfully and defiantly. That's kind of what the, the demon was doing, right? He was going to throw the boy into a, a convulsion, throw him into a fit, slamming his head up against the ground, and, and then he left, uh, just revealing his uh, sinful, defiant nature. And momentarily, it looked as if the, the demon prevailed, right? It says that everybody was looking on in verse 26 at the end, and they were thinking, this, this guy's dead, the the demon, maybe he left, but he, he won. He killed this dude first. Uh, but 
we see uh, that is very short-lived. Verse 27, Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. Uh, not too dissimilar from how uh, the, the cross appears, right? Going back to Genesis 3.15, that the serpent will strike the heel of the Messiah, but the Messiah will crush his head. Uh, it looked perhaps momentarily as if the demon had been victorious, but ultimately that was disproven. All right, let's see if we can get through at least 29. Uh, verses 28 and 29 says that when he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Uh, as Jerry referenced earlier, um, back in Mark 6, they did have the ability to, to cast out demons, and they did so successfully. So Mark 6, starting in verse 7, says that he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Jumping up to verse 12, says they went out and they preached that man should repent, and they were casting out many demons, and they were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So they did have successful instances where they uh, cast out demons. And the disciples now seem to be kind of banking on their past success of casting out demons, uh, so much so that uh, they at least had enough confidence in their ability to, to give it another shot here. Even when Jesus was gone with uh, even Peter, who was the rock amongst them, right? And James and John, the other nine said, oh, we've done this before, we can do it again, right? They gave it another shot. And when their efforts failed, they were genuinely confused as to why they had failed. But Jesus' answer also brings a, a little bit of confusion itself. In verse 29, it says, He said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Mine says, and fasting. Yes. And uh, a lot of the old manuscripts will say, and fasting. And the other uh, synoptics also say, and fasting too. So, Jesus says, This kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. And you're like, oh, Okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> what do we do with that, right? Um, there are two prominent interpretations of this verse. Um, one is that Jesus is referring to demons of different ranks. The Bible refers to different types of unfallen angels. Um, talks about cherubim in Genesis 3 and Exodus 25, Ezekiel 1. The Bible will talk about seraphim in Isaiah 6. Or archangels, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, Jude 9, Revelation 12 talks about Michael the archangel. And then the angel of the Lord, who is above all of them, right? Jesus himself is mentioned in Genesis 16, Zechariah 1, 12, and other places. So we could understand that just as there are different unfallen angels, perhaps there are different uh, fallen angels. Uh, C.S. Lewis kind of gets into this and explores this concept a little bit in his screw tape letters, right? Where screw tape, the, the senior demon, is uh, trying to advise junior demons, uh, his, his nephew and other junior demons. Uh, so perhaps that's one way that we could understand it. Or um, another way of understanding it is that Jesus was referring to de de demonic spirits in general. Um, when it talks about this kind, um, that's talking about, it could be talking about demons in general. The Greek word there is 
uh, genus. So this species of demons, this, this species of uh, being. So he could be saying that um, the, the thing here could be that you're just opening up your mouths and you're just saying things, trying to cast them out merely with your words. You're, you're only humans. You're not able to uh, actually cast out these demons. These, for now, you are lower than the angels. You're just humans. This is a different species. So he could be saying, don't trust in your own strength. Don't trust in your own power, your own ability. Before they were clearly sent out by Jesus in the power of God. And in this instance, Jesus wasn't even around when they attempted to cast this demon out. So perhaps they were doing so presumptuously. Um, I would probably lean more towards the, the second understanding, but to be honest with you, I'm not really confident enough to say dogmatically one way or another, but those are the two primary understandings that we have for verse 29. Uh, we'll save the, the following three verses for next week, but before we wrap up, any thoughts or questions on uh, 14 through 29? It's a little odd that when it came to the Legion, they were just just positively terrified of Jesus. Um, but in this case, it's, you know, angry defiance towards him. I mean, they'll do what he says, but it'll do what he says, but who knows, you know, just acts a little angrier rather than coming in, in fear and terror. Yeah. So that might give a little more credence to the first one. Perhaps with Legion, that was a, an act of defiance too with the, the herd of pigs running into the water. We don't know if that was what Jesus intended for them to do or, or not. And then again, that verse that we referenced back in Mark chapter 1, um, that demon was also... Um, a little bit defiant in verse 26 throwing him into convulsions the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and then came out of him so same kind of defiance prior to ultimately surrendering to to the authority of jesus yeah Amy? fasting takes a lot of time it's not a i'm going to say this go do you know and, and maybe their previous experiences casting out I, you know, it, it's something like they did regularly. And I'm sure regularly they were praying, but they weren't necessarily fasting. Um, yeah, it takes a little bit of foresight, right, to be fasting ahead of time. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's just because they've done this and done this and done this, and then adding prayer and fasting, that adds a whole element of time. Yeah, or of reliance and dependence mm -hmm. upon God, realizing that it's outside of yourself, that this is an act of God and something that he is to do rather than something we do in our own strength and power. So, again, I can't say dogmatically which understanding is best, but uh, those are the two prominent understandings, so do a little bit of research and do your best to come to a conclusion, but let's pray and we will fellowship together. God, thank you again for your word, for your people. Uh, bless us today as we look to you. Amen.